Hello, everybody. Welcome once again as we continue on in the study we're doing of the New Testament. We're working through a chapter at a time, and we're in the book of Luke now. Uh, We'll be in chapter 9 tonight. We've already uh, together gone through Matthew, Mark, and John, and now we're working through Luke, and then we're going to work through Acts, uh, because Luke and Acts tie nicely together, because they were both written by Luke. Both of the letters written to a man named Theophilus, which means lover of God, a Gentile believer. Some and most uh, church historians would say it was written to that individual. Others would say that it, it was written to all uh, people who love God. But uh, it seems to me that the reference is pretty clear that he was writing to Theophilus, and then Theophilus spread the letters that he got around to the church at the time. And we have, in the last couple of chapters, in chapter 7 and 8 and now in 9, um, the emphasis is really on people having to make a choice to follow Jesus. And uh, this, this uh, theme picks up in the beginning of Luke 9, and then there's a definite change in the focus about halfway through. Um, and you'll see the focus shift from Jesus talking to the crowds to Jesus just talking to primarily his disciples, Um, people that have chosen by this point to put their trust in him and follow him. And he, uh, Jesus, there in the middle of Luke 9, will, will begin to teach about what it means to be a disciple. And we'll see that throughout the end of chapter 9 and into chapter 10, uh, sort of the markings of a disciple and what, what people that are going to follow Jesus will look like and live like in the kingdom of God. And so uh, let's go ahead and read Luke chapter 9. It's a little longer than some of the other chapters, 62 verses. So it will take me a few minutes to read it to you. But uh, that's why the font is so small in your notes. The, the more verses, the smaller the font. And, uh, and I have it nice and big. I mean, I still have to wear my glasses. So what are you going to do? I can do it sort of without the glasses, but then I'm guessing at about every fourth word. Anybody else read like that? So it's better just to go over the glasses. Here we go. Luke chapter 9, verses 1 and following. When Jesus had called the twelve together, he gave them power and authority to drive out all demons and to cure diseases. And he sent them out to preach the kingdom of God and to heal the sick. He told them, take nothing for the journey. No staff, no bag, no bread, no money, no extra tunic. Whatever house you enter, stay there until you leave that town. If people do not welcome you, shake the dust off your feet when you leave their town as a testimony against them. So they set out and went from village to village, preaching the gospel and healing people everywhere. Now Herod, the Tetrarch, heard about all that was going on, and he was perplexed, because some were saying that John had been raised from the dead, others that Elijah had appeared, and still others that one of the prophets of long ago had come back to life. But Herod said, I beheaded John. Who then is this I hear such things about? And he tried to see him. Now, I just want to know, I don't usually do that in in the flow of reading, but remember the theme of this is people have to choose to follow Jesus. And they have to determine who he is. And you hear what the talk about him is. It's not that this is the Savior who's come. It's this is John the Baptist reborn This is some prophet of old time or something along those lines. So that's what the 
the people are saying. But it's even got Herod's interest. Of course, I think it has Herod's interest because his concern would be the first one, that somehow John the Baptist, whom he beheaded, is back, which <laughs> probably wouldn't <laughs> go well for Herod. <laughs> Oops. But nonetheless, that's why it's in the book. Okay. When the apostles returned, verse 10, they reported to Jesus what they had done. And then he took them with him, and they withdrew by themselves to a town called Bethsaida. But the crowds learned about it and followed him. He welcomed them and spoke to them about the kingdom of God and healed those who needed healing. Late in the afternoon, the twelve came to him and said, Send the crowd away so they can go to the surrounding villages and countryside and find food and lodging because we are in a remote place here. He replied, You give them something to eat. They answered, We only have five loaves of bread and two fish unless we go and buy uh, food for all this crowd. About 5,000 men were there. But he said to his disciples, have them sit down in groups of about 50 each. The disciples did so, and everybody sat down. Taking the five loaves and the two fish, and looking up to heaven, he gave thanks and broke them. Then he gave them to the disciples to set before the people. They all ate fish sandwiches and were satisfied. I added that. And the disciples picked up 12 basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. Wouldn't it be fun if someone said, and there was one small uh, jar of mayonnaise and a small side of relish, <laughs> and there was also enough tartar sauce to go around? That would be in the new paraphrase. Once, when Jesus was praying in private and his disciples were with him, he asked them, Who do the crowd say I am? And they replied, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others that one of the prophets of long ago has come back to life. But what about you, he asked. This is the critical part of of this chapter. Who do you say I am? And Peter answered, the Christ of God. And Jesus strictly warned them not to tell this to anyone. And he said, the Son of Man must suffer many things. And here everything begins to shift in the the text uh, and the focus. The Son of Man may suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law. And he must be killed and on the third day be raised alive. Then he said to them all, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me will save it. What good is it for a man to gain the whole world and yet lose or forfeit his very self? If anyone is ashamed of me in my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his glory and in the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. I tell you the truth. Some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the kingdom of God. About eight days after Jesus said this, he took Peter, John, and James with him and went up onto a mountain to pray. As he was praying, the appearance of his face changed and his clothes became as bright as a flash of lightning. Two men, Moses and Elijah, appeared in glorious splendor, talking with Jesus. They spoke about his departure, which he was about to bring to fulfillment at Jerusalem. Peter and his companions were very sleepy, but when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men standing with him. As the men were leaving, Jesus, Peter said to him, Master, it's good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He did not know what he was saying. While he was speaking, a cloud appeared and enveloped them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And a voice came from the cloud saying, This is my son, whom I have chosen. Listen to him. 
When the voice had spoken, they found that Jesus was alone. The disciples kept this to themselves and told no one at that time what they had seen. The next day, when they came down from the mountain, a large crowd met him. A man in the crowd called out, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son, for he is my only child. A spirit seizes him, and he suddenly screams. It throws him into convulsions so that he foams at the mouth. It scarcely ever leaves him and is destroying him. I begged your disciples to drive it out, but they could not. Oh, unbelieving and perverse generation, Jesus replied. How long shall I stay with you and put up with you? Bring your son here. Even while the boy was coming, the demon threw him to the ground in a convulsion. But Jesus rebuked the evil spirit, healed the boy, and gave him back to his father. And they were all amazed at the greatness of God. While everyone was marveling at all that Jesus did, he said to his disciples, Listen carefully to what I'm about to tell you. The Son of Man is going to be betrayed into the hands of men. But they did not understand what this meant. It was hidden from them so that they did not grasp it, and they were afraid to ask him about it. An argument started among the disciples as to which of them would be the greatest. Jesus, knowing their thoughts, took a little child and had him stand beside him. And then he said to them, Whoever welcomes this little child in my name welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me welcomes the one who sent me. For he who is least among you all, he is the greatest. Master, said John, we saw a man driving out demons in your name and we tried to stop him because he's not one of us. Don't stop him, Jesus said. Whoever is not against you is for you. As the time approached for him to be taken up to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. And he sent messengers on ahead who went into a Samaritan village to get things ready for him. But the people there did not welcome him because he was heading for Jerusalem. And when the disciples James and John saw this, they asked, Lord, do you want us to call fire down from heaven to destroy them? We'll talk about that in a minute. But Jesus turned and rebuked them, and they went to another village. As they were walking along the road, a man said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus replied, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. He said to another man, follow me. But the man replied, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, let the dead bury their own dead, but you go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Still another said, I will follow you, Lord, but first let me go back and say goodbye to my family. And Jesus replied, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the service, for service in the kingdom of God. And blessed be the word of the Lord. A lot of stuff happening in Luke chapter 9. And uh, let's uh, sort of break it down and look at it briefly together. Uh, In the first nine verses of Luke 9, Jesus sends out the disciples to preach the good news of the kingdom of God and to carry on in the ministry of healing. And they go about. Uh, doing what he told them to do, and lots of stuff happens. And uh, their ministry is very successful, and they come back to tell Jesus about it. And, and Jesus takes them to a private place where they're going to talk it all out, and then the crowd sort of follow them, and they, they have to get into something else. But um, what, you, what you need to see is the pattern of the ministry of the disciples, because we're his disciples. And the way Jesus did this was he taught the disciples... And they, they, um, they were with him as he did the things that he did. And they saw the way that he cared about people and ministered to people and loved on people and, and, and all the things that he did. And after they'd been with him for a while, 
he empowered them to go and do the same thing. And they went out and did the same sort of ministry. They went and loved on people and cared about people and prayed for people and told people that God loved them and told them about the kingdom of God and that this was the... That, you know, and this was a very different message as we've been talking about than what they've been used to. And they went forth and they did the ministry of the kingdom very successfully. And then they would come back and they'd tell Jesus and he would talk to him about it. And they'd talk over what had gone well and what hadn't. And then they'd go out and do it some more. And you'll see in the next chapter, he sends out even more who go. And, and that the Lord continues to send out his disciples. That's us now. We're to go and do the same ministry. We're to tell people the good news of the kingdom, that God loves them, that there's a way for them. We're to pray for them. We're to encourage them. We're to do all the things that, that Jesus instructs his disciples to do. And, and so this process begins there in Luke 9, in this account, where he's sending out his disciples to go and to do the ministry. And as the disciples um, carried out their ministry, more and more people were talking about uh, the things that Jesus was doing. And they were... Um, saying, well, you know, he's obviously, it's either John the Baptist has come back or he's some Old Testament prophet that's come to life or whatever it was. But there was enough talk going around that even Herod had heard it, as I talked about. And like I said, Herod's concern, I believe, primarily was he was hoping it wasn't John the Baptist because that wouldn't bode well for for him because of his actions. Uh, I'm sure that would have been his thinking. And and yet that's that's what's going on. And so the disciples come back and Jesus takes them and they're, they're going to talk and the crowd comes. And, and so here's this big crowd. Jesus has compassion on them. They're hungry. And so he decides to feed them all once again. And, and the disciples now have witnessed this once. But, and some of these people may have, but, but they're going to get it again. And they get the miraculous fish sandwich again that goes out. Now, 5,000 men were there, which means there's women and children as well. And so it could have been a crowd of 15 or 20,000 people that were fed from five loaves and two fishes. Um, that's, that's a pretty good deal. And not, you know, you think, oh, they just got a little tiny bit. They ate and were satisfied. They were full from their meal. And so um, what, what the point of is in those early verses, all those things that are going on, to me, the main thing is that the people now, they'd heard his words, They'd seen the miracles, and they'd eaten the food that he provided. It was time to make a choice. And so in, in verses 18 through 21, all of this has happened now. Um, Jesus has had this ministry. Um, he's, he's replicated the ministry in his disciples. He's, uh, m- miracles have taken place, uh, countless miracles by this time. The miracle just of the feeding of the, the great groups of people. And there's an Old Testament significance to uh, the Messiah being able to provide food like this. There's, there's these things that are happening. All this is tying in. And there, there was enough for the Jewish people to recognize at this point that Messiah had come. There should have been enough, more than enough evidence for them to choose and say, Messiah has come. So Jesus asks his disciples at this point. He says, well, who do the crowds say that I am? They answered in Luke 9, 19. Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others that one of the prophets of long ago has come back to life. Notice their answer wasn't, our God, Messiah, has come. They had all these other answers. But what about you? Jesus asked his disciples, and Peter 
answers for all of them in Luke 9.20, and he says, you're the Christ of God. And, and, and so this small group of people gets it. And they're the ones who will put their trust in Jesus, who will put their faith in Jesus. They will choose to do that. The multitudes of people who have sort of been around and hanging around or impressed by what's happening, they're not going to put their faith in Jesus. Having seen it all, they're going to go with this sort of big crowd thing. Oh, it's John the Baptist come back, or it's a prophet from some other time, or, but not Messiah. Their, their, their paradigm, their hard-heartedness, their, their um, unwillingness to uh, go against the, the establishment, all those things will keep them from putting their trust in Jesus and, and ultimately finding life. And see, this is, the, this is the big question of life. It was then and it is now. Who do you say Jesus is? It's ultimately the biggest question in life, the, the most important question in life, the, 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 the answer of which can, can lead you to eternal life. Because it's, it's not enough to say that he was a good teacher or a great prophet or a philosopher or a religious leader. He was the Christ of God. He's our Lord. He's Jesus, our Savior. And, and it, it's only in understanding that and putting our trust in Him that we find life. That's the answer that makes a difference. Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah. He's come. And it's still the answer. It was the answer then and it's still the answer today. It is the answer. I know in our uh, very sensitive culture, people get frustrated by that. But, but this is all I know how to tell you about that because it's because our thinking is messed up now that, that we get frustrated. So many people get frustrated that, that we can make a claim that there's only one way to God. And it, it frustrates people. And yet, if you think about it, I think the most amazing thing is that there is a way to God because we don't deserve it. We don't earn it. We've turned our back at Him at every possible place. Along the road, we've chosen self and sin. And that he's made a way for us is the miracle. Not that there's only a way. There's a way. We shouldn't be upset. Well, that's not. There's a way, and it's Christ. And, and he's the way. And that was the answer then, and it's the answer today. It's, it's that important that, that people understand that that's what's going on. You can't. It's not enough to say, well, he was a great guy. And he was more than that. God came. To make a way for us. He'd go to the cross on our behalf. He'd give his life for ours. To pay for our sin. To, to make a way back to, to relationship with God. Nothing else can do it. Our work could never do it. We're never good enough to do it. We won't make it in our own strength. It's only through Christ. And he's made a way. And that's the, the, the heart of this, this whole process. And he's, he's demonstrating to those people. This is, I'm here. And yet they're, they're so hard hearted. And they just... Yeah, well, and it's, it's true of people today. Yeah, well, whatever. One answer makes all the difference. From that point on, after that question is asked, the focus of the, the chapter and the book changes. Because now Jesus is really going to be communicating primarily with his disciples in the process and talk about life 
in the kingdom of God. He, he starts in verses 20 through 25, and he says something that's people, you know, it's a paradox. Uh, whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me will save it. And, and here's the thing. See, we, we, all of us want to experience life at, at some full measure. That's, a, that's one of those things that's in there. And yet, the, the paradox is that we never experience life at its fullest measure until we decide that all we really want out of life is to follow after Him. And then He gives us life. Short of that, we never get there. Because we can't in our own strength. And yet we try, and we spin our wheels, and we get all frustrated, and it's just not found that way. And, you know, I know, like me, many of you have tried lots of things <laughs> to find life. And it didn't work. Only in Christ can we find life. O- only there. It's, it's, it's the only way. And it's this paradox. If you, if you really want to find life, you're going to have to say, God, I want it your way, not my way. As long as you're hanging on to your way, you will not experience life. You'll get something shallow and superficial that will never satisfy you, ever. It's only as we make the turn and the, and the shift and decide that, that I want to live after him. He said, he said in that whole thing, then what you have to do is you have to take up your cross daily. Well, what does that mean? To me, it's, it means that what you have to do is every day decide you're going to follow him. That, that you're going to do it his way, not your way. It's a daily thing. And that, that it's, we talk about this all the time. It's about doing the next right thing. You do the next right thing. And then you do the next right thing. And then you're going to blow it. Hopefully you'll get more next right things in before you blow it. But, but you're going to blow it. And then you go back to God and you say, I'm sorry, because we, we know that we've messed up. I chose my way instead of your way. And I don't want to do that, Lord. And he says, okay, I forgive you. Get back out there. Do it again. Go, your, go my way. And we start again. And this is the process of life that we're following. But that's where we find life. And so he, he's going to go from here. And, and he's going to start talking about the, the attitude and the qualities of the life of a disciple. And that, that we tend to think in a very natural, selfish way, and it's almost always the opposite way in the kingdom. We have to change our thinking. And this happens all the time to, to the disciples and what they're trying to figure out. Um, in, in Luke 9, 37 through 43... There's this, there's this encounter that a lot of people don't... They go, what's this mean? Where... Um, Jesus and, and James and John and Peter were up on the mountain um, and there was this amazing uh, penetration of the kingdom of God and Moses and Elijah, they're talking to Jesus. And it's the glory of God is so overwhelming, you know, and the guys don't know how to let Peter, you know, Peter just liked to talk and hear himself talk. Um, I love Peter. He's one of my favorite guys because he's just Peter, you know, and he goes, oh, it's good we're here. We'll build some houses for you. And... <laughs> Even Luke says, yeah, Peter didn't have any idea what he was talking about, but he didn't, he had to say something. And, and, uh, I love that the, in the glory of God, that the voice just shows up and says, this is my son. Listen to him. Isn't that cool? If he needs a house, he'll let you know. <laughs> so, so this encounter happens because Jesus had said, remember six days before that happened, some of you here will, will see the kingdom of God. Uh, and, and here's this, and, and Jesus is already saying the kingdom is here, but here's this huge um, manifestation of the kingdom and the glory of God that these guys witness. Well, they come down from there, and the remaining disciples, there were some down there still, where there were nine of them down there, they were just kind of hanging out waiting, and, and 
in a, in a moment, it's going to lead to a discussion about who's the greatest because the nine that were down there are not very happy at the three who were up. That, that's part of the process. But a, a person has come with his son who's uh, demon-possessed, and, and he asks the disciples to heal him, and they can't do it. And people go, well, why, why couldn't they do it? They've just been out on a mission. They've just been doing these things. What was the, what was the problem? Um, I think the problem is this. Um, sometimes I think we ask from men what we should be asking f- from God. They didn't. Do you get that, that he, he was trying to like put his faith? You can't put your faith in the disciples. You, you, you have, your faith has to be in God. We, we can't. It always has to come from that emphasis. See, because as soon as Jesus shows up, he takes care of business. Now, does it mean they, they could never do it? Well, he's commissioned them to do it, but, but we always have to be sent into what we do. We always have to be listening and looking for what the Father's doing. We can never just begin to take on the idea that, that apart from him that we can do anything. So, so we need to be very careful in how we proceed. That doesn't mean that we don't do anything. I believe that, that in most situations, if you're tuned in, that God will call you and tell you to pray or to do or, or to go and to be. But we need to make sure that we don't just start getting out there on our own. We'll end up in trouble. And so the, the, the main characteristics of a disciple is trust. We've got to trust in God. We, everything we've got to do has got to be because we're trusting in Him. We realize that we can't do it in our own strength. Anything that we do in our own strength really doesn't matter much. It's about him, listening to him, looking for him. We've we got to put our trust in him. That's one of the first characteristics of a disciple. Trusting God for everything. Listening to God. Deciding, first off, you're going to follow him because that's where life is. And then trusting him with your life to lead and to guide you. And then in Luke 9, um, 44 and 45, uh, Jesus talks about suffering in those verses. And the, the heads up there is that because we live in a fallen world, on a broken planet, all of us will face difficulties in life. Even Jesus was going to go through some really tough stuff. And, and he's God. He's going to endure it on our behalf, but he's going to endure it. Um, because the, the world's broken. It's fallen. Things happen. And this is something that we have to understand. The, the role of a disciple doesn't mean we get a pass on difficulties in life. It just means that he'll see us through them. But that's through them in the process. In, in verses uh, 46 through 50, the disciples have an argument about who will be the greatest. Uh, and Jesus brings a child in and says, you know, it's, it's the least of these that are going to make a difference in the kingdom. But this was an argument that they had that was ongoing. And it's a very normal, selfish, self-focused argument. What about me? And this is something we have to deal with every day because... A lot of our thinking and decision-making comes from that place. That's just a reality. I'm, I'm just saying, if you're honest, most of it's coming from there, and yet we, it's the reason we make bad decisions. Because it's, it's hard for us to shift. It was very hard for these guys, even being that close to Jesus, to get their thinking right. It would take them their lifetimes. Because they'll still demonstrate selfishness because they're sinners, just like the rest of us. And yet this ongoing thing was who would be the greatest. And, and Jesus is trying to point out that it's not the, the way that you think it is. And that's most of the kingdom is opposite of the way we think naturally. It's, it's opposite. Uh, the supernatural way to do things is different. 
than what often comes to us. And then uh, in verses 51 through 56, oh, I love this thing too, because it reminds me of John. Um, Jesus wasn't welcome into a Samaritan village on the way to Jerusalem. And so John and James get angry. And what they want to do is, is, is call down fire from heaven and destroy the whole village. And Jesus, Jesus rebukes him and says, really? I mean, that's his thought. You watching what I'm doing about caring about people and you want to burn up a bunch of them? And, and this is, this was, and, and John was a little fiery, uh, in, in his writings. And, and, cause he earlier, you know, when Jesus was confronting them about this whole idea about who's the greatest, and he got a little child there, and John changes the subject, cause that's too much, too close to home, cause he's one of the ones in the middle of the struggle. John, James, and Peter, he doesn't want Jesus getting, cause John and Peter are the ones really going at it all the time. Who's going to be the greatest? And then, he brings this little child in, and, and John's kind of sitting there, and he changes the subject. And he says, hey, we saw a guy casting out demons in your name, and we, we told him to stop. Jesus said, why? Well, he's not one of us. <laughs> so, if he's doing it, you know, for the kingdom, and in the, then let it go. And then along the way, John has this thing again. The whole this Samaritan village won't receive Jesus. Let's, let's you know, toast him. And, and Jesus says, No. But you know what I love about this with John? Do you know when John is older and goes through his life, at the end of his life he writes some books and he goes and he writes first, second, and third John. He wrote the gospel too, but you know in those in those last three letters that he writes, the overwhelming topic is the love of God. Love this person. God is love. Love, 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 love. Gone is the talk of shutting down and burning up. Because he gets it over time. That's our hope for all of us, is that we can get this figured out as we go. And then, uh, ultimately, verses 57 through 62, um, uh, it's about commitment. And, and that's another mark of discipleship. See, we have to be, we can't be like sometime disciples or good weather disciples or every now and again disciples. You're either in or you're out. You're either committed to follow Jesus or you're not. And, and all these people with their excuses, Jesus was just saying, listen, it's, it's really pretty simple. Get your eyes on me, follow after me. And that's what we need to do. We get our eyes on Jesus, we follow after him, and then he takes care of everything else. And so that's the call of Luke 9. Let's focus on Jesus. Follow after him. Amen? Amen. If you're watching by video, thank you for watching. And uh, if you're up in Williston, hi, everybody. And uh, we love you guys. They'll pray for you up there. We're going to pray here as a group. If you're watching on the Internet, um, if you need anything, you can email us or write us or call us, and we'll do what we can. All right, thanks for watching. If you guys have your prayer requests, pass them up to me, please, and I will pray for you.